Thanks, guys. It's uh, great to be with you. So, yeah, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Good to, good to see you guys. Good to be with you. If uh, you're new to Fellowship Nashville, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Ryan. I serve as pastor of teaching and community here. And today I get the honor and privilege of wrapping up this series that we've been in called uh, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. And so as we get started, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, as we look at your word today, um, the phrase that's just been stirring in me again and again is, I don't want to talk about you behind your back. Lord, it is so easy sometimes to, um, to maybe do church, to do the things that we know we ought to do, or to assume that, you know, we're good, when we don't realize how desperate we are for you. Lord, how I pray that today you would fill our hearts with gratitude at our dependency on you, God, that you would reveal in greater and deeper measure just how wonderful and awesome you are. So Lord, we love you, we worship you, we praise you to your glory. Amen? Well, friends, as I've been thinking about our time together this morning, I was reminded to date of the one time, one time, that I have received a speeding ticket. Um, Shortly out of seminary, uh, we took our first call in Montana, and one of the things that I had heard in seminary was that Montana didn't have a speed limit. So I thought one day I would put that to the test. We were making a long drive across the state. If you've ever been to Montana, it's like four hours between towns. And so, like, here we are, we hit the open road, I take off, and all of a sudden, I start to see these red and blue lights flash in my rearview mirror. I look down at the speedometer, and I see two numbers, seven and nine, and they may not have been in that order. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I find myself pulled over, and guess what I found out? Montana does have a speed limit, and I got a pretty fat ticket as a result of it. And you know, the reality is, I think sometimes we can go through life and we come into a place where we, we think we know how the world works. You know, there are certain assumptions that we make about life, and if we're not careful, we can settle into a place where we, uh, you know, go through the motions or we, we do the right things because we, we think we know what the rules of the game are. And yet, if we're not careful, sometimes we can try and keep score in life as if it's a football game by touch, counting how many three-point shots we make only to realize we've been playing the wrong game all along. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, as we wrap up this sermon series that we've been in on the seven letters to the seven churches, I believe Jesus speaks with a very important message that powerfully reminds us of the danger of presumption in our own lives. And so if you have your Bible, let me invite you to open up with me to Revelation chapter 3. We'll read verses 14 to 22 together. And here's what we're told. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Powerful, powerful stuff here. Again, as we come to the conclusion of this series, uh, we've been looking for the last uh, seven weeks now at these churches and this powerful picture that we get of God's design and heartbeat for the local church. You might recall that as we've been making our way through this series, one of the things that we've been suggesting to you is that the book of Revelation is often a misunderstood book. When people think of Revelation, what comes to mind are these images of like cosmic beasts and, and crazy images that we, we find in the book. And, and yes, that's part of the message. But the central idea of what the book of Revelation is all about is that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of who he is as the one who stands above every circumstance, every situation, every attempt of the human heart to live independently from him. In fact, what the book of Revelation reminds us about is this simple reality that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And when we understand that reality, as we come to the church of Laodicea, we find a church who in her presumption had wandered, who had drifted from what had mattered most. She thought she had it all figured out only to realize that she understood nothing. And it's why in this passage, I believe Jesus is pointing us to kind of a key nugget, a key truth that I want to suggest to you today. And it's simply this, beware the danger of presumption. And its tepid effect on the human heart. Beware the danger of presumption. And its tendency to make the human heart lukewarm. And as we get at what that's all about. Today I think it's most appropriate to begin again as we found in these letters. With this beautiful description of who Jesus is. And it will begin by this journey of reminding us about the danger of presumption what presumption is really all about. We're told this, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. You know, Jesus opens this passage by identifying him as the amen. Does anybody recall what the word amen means? And it Hmm? Let it be so. Yeah, it's not just a tack on that we throw in at the end of a prayer. But it is this recognition that when we pray before Jesus, what we're saying is he is the one who has the power and the authority and the strength to carry out all things in our life, in our journey. And what he's saying is, as the amen, he is the one that it's really all about. That he is the faithful and the true witness and the beginning of creation. And we're told that he writes this letter to this church in Laodicea. So as we've been kind of looking at these letters, what do we know about the church in Laodicea? Well, you might recall that we've been kind of following this mail route, as we've been suggesting, as we've been traveling through each of the seven churches in the area. The church in Laodicea was a church that was renowned for its economic prosperity. It was known for the diversity of its economy. It was known within the region as a source of economic vitality, strength, and independence. 
On the outside, everything in the church in Laodicea looked good. Everything looked great in the city around them. But we learned very quickly that something is very wrong. In fact, we find that warning in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Word would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You know, uh, this is one of those passages that I think oftentimes gets misunderstood. Because when we read this passage, often the way I've taught is that uh, this is really about spiritual fervor. What Jesus is saying to the church is, you've lost your spiritual fervor and passion. But can I suggest to you that the history and the geography of the church in Laodicea actually tells us something that's vital to our understanding of this passage. You know, if you were to look at the geographical location of the church in Laodicea, one of the things that you would quickly discover is that it lies in the middle of what's known as the Lycan Valley. Uh, we'll put a picture of it up here. Uh, Laodicea is, uh, has the Lycus River that flows near it. But the river is far enough away that it's about six and seven miles away from the city. Now, here's the interesting thing. Laodicea was a culture that prided herself on both her architecture and her engineering skills. And one of the things that Laodicea was known for was the way in which planners actually piped in hot and cold water from two different sources. In the town of Hierapolis, you would find rich, warm, mineral hot springs that were renowned for their healing properties. And what happened is they built a series of aqueducts in order to get the water from Heropolis into Laodicea. To the south, you have the town of Colossae, and in Colossae, you have the waters of the Lycan River. And again, a similar aqueduct was built in order to get the water to the city of Laodicea. Now, here's the interesting situation. What do you think happens to hot water as it travels over six miles? it loses its heat. And what do you think happens to cold water on a summer's day as it makes its way to the city? It becomes lukewarm. In fact, it's interesting. There are actually documentations in the ancient world that because of the water that was being pumped in from Hierapolis, there were so many sulfuric minerals in the water that it would literally gunk up the pipes and it stunk. And by the time it reached the city, it was this lukewarm mess that nobody wanted to utilize. You know why this is so powerful is I think it speaks to something that's so incredibly important. I mean, if you look in verse 16, one of the things that I have often wrestled with, why would Jesus say that he wants to spit someone out of his mouth? Again, remember, what this is about is about the the lampstand of a local church, the way in which it reflects the light and the beauty and the glory of Christ into the world. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, if you come into a place where you no longer live in a dependence on me, if you drift far enough away from the source... You miss out on the life-giving properties of the life of the kingdom. Maybe a different way I would put it is simply this, is that lukewarmness is distancing ourselves from a constant dependence on Jesus. 
Again, this really shouldn't surprise us. Jesus himself warns us in John chapter 15, verse 5, that he is the vine and we are the branches, and apart from him, we can do what? What? Nothing. You know, years ago, I had the privilege of hearing uh, Pastor Francis Chan uh, give a message. and He, he looked at a passage, and, and this uh, sermon just was written deeply into the core of who I was, who I am, and he looked at John chapter 6, verse 63. And there you find this powerful invitation that the spirit is life, and the flesh is of no benefit at all. At all. And to make his point, he asks this question. Let's say Jesus came to you and he gave you a very unique message. And he said to you, okay, here's what I want you to do today. I want you to go out and raise somebody from the dead. Who would you take? Would you take a good teacher? Uh, Would you you take someone that has the ability to build a, a system of dynamic programs? Um, uh, maybe you'd take the most dynamic uh, contemporary worship artist of the day. Who would you take? And his answer was this. You would take the person who had been close to Jesus. And he went on to ask this question. Why is it that we assume that living as the church and walking in the process of inviting people into spiritual transformation is any less a supernatural work than watching a corpse stand up in a grave? And I think sometimes the danger of presumption is that we can come into a place where where we can reason, you know, we've done this long enough that we can get by without Jesus. We can get by without having him at the core of everything that we do. And when we live in that place, we find ourselves in a very dangerous spirit and place, as was the situation in Laodicea. And what Jesus is going to do is, with much grace and love, he is going to invite them to see just the significance and the importance of coming back to a desperate dependence on him. He's going to invite them to return again to the master. If you look with me in verse 17, we get a powerful insight into what was going on in the hearts and the attitude of the church of Laodicea. Because there we're told, for you say, I'm rich. I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You pride yourself on, hey, We've made it. We've accomplished it. We look good to the world around us, not realizing how desperately dependent on Jesus you really are. And can I say from the outset that this issue is not a matter of what's the balance in your bank account. It's it's a matter of the attitude of our hearts. It's a matter of wrestling with this question of, hey, have we reached a place in our journey where we believe that we can simply go through the motions without living in this connectedness to Jesus? And what's going to happen is Jesus is going to invite them into a series of currency exchanges. He's going to invite them into a number of beautiful opportunities to trade that which doesn't matter for that which matters most. And we find it uh, beginning in verse 18. He says, for I counsel you to buy from me gold refined 
by fire so that you may be rich. In other words, what he's inviting them to do is to trade their wealth for true treasure. One of the things that you'll discover as you read through the pages of the scriptures are the powerful invitations that we find again and again against what scripture warns as what the Greek word or Aramaic word is, uh, which is mammon. Mammon is not just wealth, but an idolatrous attachment to wealth. It's the belief that what we have in our pocketbook is where our ultimate faith, security, hope, and life come from. And the invitation that Jesus gives to the church is to trade that for that which matters most. I think a passage that speaks so powerfully to the heart dynamics that are at work here is actually found all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And here we find these words, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is, even in this day. The very real danger that we might come to is this place where we believe that the balance of our bank account says we're good. The balance of our bank account says, you know, maybe we're not as desperately dependent on Jesus as we'd like to be or need to be. I think an honest question we have to wrestle with. And again, this is a question of whether you have a dollar or $10 billion in your bank account. Are there ways in which we use our material possessions as a way to insulate ourselves from the call to follow Jesus? But just a small, a small aside. One of the largest growing segments of our culture is entertainment. And again, that's not a bad thing. But let me ask you this. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through your phone to numb out the hurt and the pain and the struggle of what the day has just brought you? And the challenge and the circumstance that we have is to recognize where true wealth comes from. To recognize that our hope isn't found in, in somehow numbing out the pain, but our hope is found in living radically dependent on Jesus. And when we live from that place, we discover that we worship a God who is far more generous than we could ever imagine. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also goes on to counsel the church to buy from him white garments so that they may clothe themselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. It's interesting because um, one of the things that the church in Laodicea was known for was the production of a certain black garment. It had a unique uh, combination of dyes that made it renowned throughout the entire Roman Empire. And the people likely prided themselves, look what we can do, look what we can produce, look how skilled we are. And in the skill of their creativity, they missed out again of the radical dependency that they were invited to live with Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus goes on to say this, that I invite you to buy white garments. Again, uh, notice the stark contrast that's going on here with the, what was renowned in that world for the production of those, uh, of those unique garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. You know, I think what this church speaks to is the reality that we can often go about this life where we try to clothe ourselves with the perceptions of external success rather than the mark of an internal heart that is marked by an intimate relationship with Jesus. Can I tell you, friends, you can achieve the greatest success that the world has to offer But unless we've experienced a life of dependency and surrender to Christ, there will come a day where it will come to nothing. And the warning that Jesus is giving this church is to recognize the most important thing that you will give to this world is not the depth of your external success. It's not the name for yourself that you put in the lights, but it is a heart that is marked by a radical dependency on Jesus. It is an invitation to trade our success for surrender, to make him the Lord and the master over every area of our lives. Friends, I think an honest question that is so good to wrestle with here when was the last time that living life Jesus' way interrupted my schedule? Or is Jesus merely an accommodation and an affirmation of life as I always want to live it? And the dangerous effect of this lukewarmness is we can, we can assume, you know, Jesus is okay with me having and holding on to things apart from him. But friends, can I tell you, at the end of your life, the greatest thing that will mark human existence is the depth of our relationship with Jesus. So why would we waste this life pursuing success when it's not what matters most? Because it really comes back then to how we look at life, how we see wisdom, how we see perspective in the journey. In fact, it's why Jesus will go on to invite the church. And I invite you to buy salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Scholars have noted that the city of Laodicea was also known for the production of what was called Phrygian powder. And I've tried to understand what exactly this Phrygian powder did. Um, but the best thing that I can find from the resources is somehow by putting it on your eyes, it allowed you to see. So I don't know, maybe it was like liquid Latex. I, I, I have no idea how this stuff worked, but it was renowned throughout the ancient empire that if you put this on your eyes, somehow you would be able to see more clearly. And what Jesus is doing here is he's appealing to the wisdom of the people. He's saying, look, don't waste your time pursuing life as if wisdom was all about you. 
As if you were the source of how all wisdom works in the world. As if you were an authority unto yourself, but to recognize that life is best lived as we follow and obey what Christ has revealed in his word. Again, I think a powerful question to ask is, where do we look for wisdom? I mean, just the other day, I'm sitting on my phone and I'm scrolling through the reels on Facebook. And one of the questions I found myself asking is, what in the world are these things saying? And there were message after message after message of, you're not enough. If you just get this new next thing, then you'll be happy. And other people have it better off more than you. And you know, as I looked at those messages, it became really clear to me that there is a clash that is going on here over where we'll look for the value and importance of this life. Is it in the next product that we can buy online? Is it found in Amazon Prime? Or is it found in the one who is the prime giver of all things above them all? And I think the question that we'll be forced to ask day in and day out is where will we look as the ultimate source and matter of wisdom? Because you know, Jesus desires our hearts. I love this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. We can read this and kind of add the words, you idiot, to the end of it, you know? Uh, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent, you bunch of idiots. Can I suggest to you that is not the tone of Jesus in this passage? It's more the, the, the love of a tender father who's saying, why in the world would you waste your life on that which doesn't matter? Why would you spend your days on that which promises to be life, but it never really fulfills and brings the life you're looking for? I love you. And sometimes, friends, one of the greatest gifts that God will give us are things that will bring us back to a place of radical dependency on him. It's powerful. And so he invites us to repent, to radically change our way of looking. And in order to do that, I think then it leads us into a third point I want to draw your attention towards. This beautiful invitation that we find. You know, if you look at verse 20, I'm convinced that this is probably one of the most misquoted and misunderstood scripture verses in the whole of the New Testament in our world today. If you're like me, when you read verse 20, this is the image that comes to mind. I see pictures from my childhood Sunday school class, like this one, of Jesus standing next to a door. And there's, there's a few things about this picture that drive me crazy. Let's just eliminate the obvious first. Jesus was not white, okay? So that's, that's point number one. He was Jewish. But here he is, and he's knocking at the door. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and he with me. When we hear this passage typically repeated, to whom is it addressed? To whom do we often treat it as if it's addressed? To non-believers. You know, behold, I stand outside of the door. I'm knocking. Come in and make me the Lord and the master of your life. And while that's a true and appropriate application of the larger message of Scripture, can I suggest to you, that's not what this passage is saying. Because to whom is this letter addressed? 
Is it to those outside of the church or to those inside of the church? Inside, yeah. So what in the world is Jesus saying? And he's saying this. Here you are living in this life of presumption, trying to get by doing life apart from me. Oh, but listen. I'm just outside the door knocking. And any time that you are ready to say, Jesus granted me a desperate dependence on you, I'm right there. And I'll open the door and come in with you and you with me. Jesus is saying, any time that you are ready to move into this place of radical dependency on me, here I am. Any time that you're in this place where you're tired of the status quo of simply doing life in your own power, your own ways, for your own good, discover I'm just outside of the door day by day. Saying here, I am. And as we've looked through all these letters in Revelation again and again, the invitation that we are given is to recognize that he is the one who stands at the door, that he is the one who is inviting us to recognize that at the end of the day, it's all about him. You might have noticed when I prayed, um, I prayed something that I often do I heard this uh, as a response to a message a number of years ago, and I remember nothing of the message, but I remember this prayer. Jesus, don't let me be guilty of praying about you, or talking about you behind your back. And the point there was this humble recognition that sometimes, uh, just in this story, can we talk about the fact that the party is going on and Jesus is on the outside? Does that terrify you? Does me. And, and, and sometimes we can come into a place where we simply go through the motions of following Jesus without recognizing how desperately dependent we are on him. One of the questions I found myself asking this week, Fellowship Nashville, in each of our lives, is there some place where if Jesus doesn't show up, we're in deep, deep trouble? Are there things that he has called us to that if, if they were lived apart from a radical dependency on Jesus that we would fall flat on our face? Do we live with the same kind of desperate dependency, again, as Francis Chan said, of like walking into a blind convention and telling people, look at me. Because we recognize that the only person that will cause the advance of the bride of Christ and his transforming work in the world is Christ himself. And we live it in a place of radical dependency on him. Friends, look how this passage closes. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sit down with my father on his throne. He's saying to the one who recognizes, to the one who lives in this dependency on me, here's what we'll find. Our Father is so good and so generous 
that there is nothing that stops the abundance of his goodness, mercy, and grace. Can I tell you, as I look at my own heart and journey, and the more I walk with others, the more I become convinced of a singular fact. And it's that oftentimes the depth of our relationship with Jesus is marked less by his desire for our depth because he'll take us as deep as we want to go. But it's marked by the limitations of our own desire. It's marked by the limitations of the fact that we want other things more than him. And the invitation that we'll have both this Thanksgiving and as we move into this Christmas season is the invitation to make room for him. To make room for his presence and his goodness in our life. Is it any wonder then that as we come to the conclusion of these churches, there's probably no better question that we can ask than simply this. Where do I need to let Jesus in? Friends, for each of us today and collectively as a church, Jesus is standing at the door, knocking. And he is saying, I have dreams and desires for you that would blow out of the water even your deepest imaginations and wonderings of what could be. Well, that's why we don't depend on Siri and these devices. (laughs) Because it really is all about this radical dependency on him. I just want to invite you, invite the worship team to come up, and as they do, to simply ask Jesus this question, where are you knocking on my heart? Maybe today, that looks like trusting for the first time that he is the master and the king over your life. Maybe today, that means trusting that there's hope even in the doubts and the questions. Maybe today, that means trusting that on the borders of being enough, you discover a God who can do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. And he's simply saying, I'm here. Will you open the door?